Good morning, everybody. We're moving through the ranks of real people just like us in the biblical record who either accepted or rejected their all-in commitment moment. But there are several more that are documented in Scripture that we will just not have the time to consider because we only have seven weeks for this. But I certainly do not want to overlook the one that we're focusing on this weekend. He's obvious if you think about it. The book of beginnings gives us the background of his story. It's found in Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made the man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Before I get started, I just want you to see, first of all this morning, that God only has one area of vulnerability, and that is His love for people, His love for you and me. The only time He's grieved, (laughs) the only time His heart is filled with pain is when we, His people, turn away from Him. And so, by the time of Noah, the earth had become unfit for human habitation. Believe me, you would not want to raise your children on the pre-flood earth. So God determined to do the only loving thing. He was going to wash the earth. He was going to cleanse it with water. God, in His infinite wisdom and mercy, determined that the method of purging the earth to make it fit once more for humans to inhabit was to be a global flood. And I don't have time this morning to defend the miracle, but if you go online, you can study the evidence for yourself in geography, in archaeology, in anthropology. And by the way, if you haven't visited the Creation Museum in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, it would be a great field trip for your family. Well, Noah's all-in moment is described in a single verse In the Hall of Faith chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. That's when Noah pushed all his chips to the center of the table. Now, I doubt that any of you would recognize the name Korzak Zolkowski, but in 1948, he was commissioned to design a massive carving that would honor the famous Indian warrior Crazy Horse. Ironically, Crazy Horse would not even consent to being photographed when he was alive. So you have to wonder how he would feel about a 563-foot-high bust carved in the granite face of a mountain in the Black Hills. We've got some pictures of him. Wow, what a nose. Zolkowski. The sculptor invested three decades of his life 
carving this statue that is eight feet taller than the Washington Monument, that is nine times larger than the faces on Mount Rushmore. And since Korzak's death in 1982, his family has carried on their father's work. The projected date of completion is the year 2050, just shy of 100 years devoted to this single task. That is hard to imagine. But listen, it took Noah and his family 120 years to build the ark. Noah's ark ranks as the largest and the longest construction project in history. And the ark measured 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, 30 cubits in height. In the Hebrew system of measures, a cubit was 18 inches. So we're talking about the ark being the length of one and a half football fields. Not until the 19th century did a ship this size get constructed again. And the design ratio of Noah's Ark is still considered to be the standard for stability at sea. The internal volume of the Ark was the equivalent of 569 boxcars, capacity for 125,000 animals. Now, to put that in perspective, there are 2,000 animals in the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. So you could fit the animal population of 60 national zoos on board Noah's Ark. And building the ark required a rare combination of brains and brawn. It was probably the first boat ever built. And it did not include an instruction manual. And it took buckets of blood, sweat, and tears to get the job done. Not to mention faith. Not to mention faith. Who builds a boat in the desert? Who hammers away for 120 years on something they might, might not even need? Who bets their future on a coming crisis that has never happened before? And Noah didn't just immediately start building according to Jewish tradition. He had to plant the cypress trees first and wait till they were fully grown. Then his sons cut them down and sawed them into planks to build the ark. That's what I call being all in. <laughs> That's what I call going all out for God. There are two specific statements from this account that I want to try to impress on you this morning. Here's the first one. And it's repeated four times in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. You see it in chapter 6, verse 22 says it in just those words, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. says it in chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. says it in chapter 7, verse 9 and 16, Noah entered the ark as God had commanded. Now, Noah did not have the cognitive capacity to understand the scope of what God had commanded him to build because it was unprecedented. And yet he obeyed every detail of revelation God gave him, and his conscientious obedience saved him and saved his family. What we learn from Noah is that we have to be obedient to the revelation God has already given us before he will take us higher. He wants our obedience first as a demonstration of our trust in him. We tend to want a money-back guarantee before we take the first step of obedience. But you see, that eliminates faith from the equation. 
We need to put ourselves in a place to be more dependent on God if we want to see Him at work in our lives. When it comes to obeying God's soft prompting, we just need to jump in with both feet. Sometimes we need to go after a dream that is destined to fail unless there is divine intervention. And that's what we are doing as a church right now, 2015, as we go all in for our city. Now, I know that some of you here this morning were here 15 years ago when the elders of Cullen Avenue Christian Church made a bold decision to relocate the church campus, to change the name, to start building from scratch here at the crossroads of what is now I-69 and the Lloyd Expressway. Since those days, our church has nearly doubled in size. Our campus has become a seven-day-a-week, 15-hour-a-day ministry serving the deepest needs of over 4,000 people. But as you saw in the video, there are 120,000 people in Vandenberg and Warwick counties who are unsaved or unchurched. So now, once again, we find ourselves needing space. Here's some recent pictures of a middle school event, a high school event, an elementary event, demonstrating our need for dedicated space for our growing children's and student ministries, demonstrating the need for more administrative space for pastors and staff and interns and volunteers. New children's classrooms will enable us to double the size of our student theater. And new administrative offices will make it possible for us to reclaim the office space behind this worship center for decision counseling, for worship teams, for prayer rooms. New administrative space will enable us to vacate the rooms above this worship center for construction of a balcony in the future. A drive-through weather canopy at our main entrance would make our front porch much more welcoming and convenient and safe, especially for our senior adults, especially for our young families. Upgrades in our worship center will make it a more evangelistic tool. Our cameras and much of the equipment in this building is original from 1999. And sound and video technology have moved on and left us behind, and we need to catch up so we can amplify our worship and Bible teaching ministries. Other initiatives to reach our city include the purchase of the Crossroads Arts Academy as a creative strategy for outreach to families in the area. And finally, our multi-site expansion of our ministry into the Evansville and Newburgh community are going to require some startup funding. And I think this could be the most exciting development going forward as we import our ministries to other locations throughout the community, throughout the area, much like what we've already done with the Westside Ministry Center on St. Joseph Avenue and the Crossroads Worship Arts Academy. And these successful multi-site launches in recent months have encouraged us to want to do more, to distribute our witness for Jesus throughout the city, to make more disciples by bringing th this church closer to where people are. Many will come to us. Many have come to us. Many more will not. And so we need to go to them. 
Well, back to our story. The evidence that Noah was all in is revealed in a very telling line that I read just a few moments ago. Chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Toward the end of his life, this, this guy, Korzak Zolkowski, you know, who worked 30 years on this crazy horse monument, Somebody asked him, how could you devote your entire lifetime to this one task? His answer was, well, when your life is over, you'll be asked only one question. Did you do what you were supposed to do? Now, that's not just a good question. That is the question. Did you do what you were supposed to do. And it cannot be answered with mere words and be convincing. It has to be answered with your life. As a Christian, did you do what you were supposed to do? As a church, did we do what we were supposed to do? And it seems to me that that is the preliminary question that will be asked and must be answered before any commendation is received from the Master. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's dependent on answering the question, did you do what you were supposed to do? Noah built the ark because God commanded it. It's what he was supposed to do. Sawing planks, hammering nails were acts of obedience. And when it was all said and done, it was the longest act of obedience recorded in the Bible. From start to finish, Noah's one act of obedience took 43,000 800 days. But it wasn't all he did. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. So while he and his wife and his sons and their wives were building the ark, they also witnessed and testified and warned the people in his city, in his area. Noah was all in, not only for the sake of his own family, but also for the sake of the people around them, the people in their community in their city, if you will. No matter what tool you use in your trade, a hammer, a keyboard, a mop, a deflated football, <laughs> a spreadsheet, <laughs> a microphone, an espresso machine, Using it, using it is an act of obedience. One of the ways that you worship God is through your work. It's the way you do what you're supposed to do. And like Noah, with your life and lips, you should also be a preacher of righteousness. Look at these words from Martin Luther King, Jr. He said, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. That's what we want to be. Whatever it is that we are supposed to do, let's do it with that kind of honesty, that kind of diligence, that kind of loyalty, that kind of excellence. If we do, we will earn the respect and admiration of those that we can influence for what is right and true about Jesus. 
And as you use your God-given gifts and abilities and opportunities, you're going to be compensated. And your compensation or your income from your life work becomes actually your coin life. It represents you. It represents your time. It represents your energy. It represents your talents, your gifts and abilities. And you will use this coined life in one of three ways. You'll spend it or you will save it or maybe invest it and you will give it. And I personally feel sorry for people who either have never learned this God-honoring attitude toward money or who just refuse to embrace it. It's a fact that right now the wealthiest Americans are giving less of their income away while the poor and middle-income people are giving more. Charity Navigator tracks this kind of thing and it reports that in the years between 2006 and 2012, those with incomes in excess of $200,000 a year reduce their giving by 4.6% while those with incomes under $100,000 a year increased their giving by 4.5% during the same period. Now that seems incongruent to me. Why is it? Why is it that the more we have, the more we, we tend to want to keep for ourselves? I think the answer is in the words of Jesus in Mark 4.19. He said, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in. Well, as Christians, we certainly should be more generous than the average Americans because as followers of Jesus, His humility is our example. He was never too busy to be interrupted. He was always interested in people. He was always available. He was always approachable. So His humility is our model. And His generosity is our model. He healed incurable diseases, no charge. Now, if you were a doctor today and you could 100% heal diseases, there's, there's no limit to what your income would be. Jesus healed incurable diseases, no charge. He raised the dead, no charge. Think what kind of a business enterprise that could be. He fed 5,000 without presenting a guest check to any one of them. And even without charging anyone for anything, there was money in the disciples' treasury to pay for the living expenses of Jesus and the Twelve as they went about doing good and teaching about the kingdom of heaven full-time for three years. How did that happen? It happened because people who believed in Jesus and the apostles gave generously to make their ministry possible. Well, I promised you two statements. The first one, Noah did everything God had commanded him. So what's the second one? Here it is. Here's the second statement this morning. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's exactly what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. In a time when great wickedness prevailed on the earth, Noah stood out as a righteous man. In a time of moral freefall, Noah stood out as a blameless man. In a time when no one had a thought of God, Noah walked 
with God and his obedience produced blessing. His closeness with God resulted in favor in the eyes of God. So what in the world is the favor of God anyhow? Well, the favor of God is what God can do for you that you absolutely cannot do for yourself. It's his favor that inspires ideas. His favor opens doors of opportunity. His favor turns opposition into support. It's his favor that can help you get the job or the promotion or make the list or close the deal or find the bargain. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. As a boy, we know that Jesus grew in favor with God, Luke chapter 2 verse 52. And I wonder, you parents here this morning and grandparents here this morning, are you praying this over your children and grandchildren? It's good to pray for God's favor. It's wise to pray for God's favor. That's what the prayer of Jabez was all about. In 1 Chronicles 4.10, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me. Keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Jabez prayed for the favor of God, and God granted his request. So is that all we have to do? Pray for it? Well, how do we experience God's favor? That's the question, isn't it? And the short answer is in the first statement that we considered today. It is obedience, favor. The favor of God comes out of total commitment. We don't hold out on God. He does not hold out on us. Listen, Psalm 84, verse 11 captures this thought. It says, the Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless, that is, those who do right, that is, those who live with integrity. And if we consecrate ourselves to him, his favor will be our vanguard and our rear guard. But the favor of God is not limited to the spiritual realm. His favor extends into every area of our lives. But he determines what that favor looks like, not us. In Noah's life, it translated into ingenious inventions. He didn't just build the first boat and pioneer the shipbuilding industry. Noah probably held a wide variety of patents on a plow, a scythe, a hoe, a number of other implements. It doesn't matter what you do. God wants to help you do it. He wants to favor your marriage and family. He wants to favor your business plan. He wants to favor your legal brief. He wants to favor your sales pitch. He wants to favor your practice. But you have to position yourself for that favor by acting in obedience. So as your pastor, as your spiritual shepherd, May I ask you very humbly and sincerely this morning in church, are you doing everything the Lord commands? Or would you be honest and say, I'm not walking in obedience in this or that area of my life. Are you doing what you are supposed to do? Or would you have to be honest and say, I'm not 
presently doing what I know is God's best for my family and me. Okay, so here are my follow-up questions. When? When are you going to bring your obedience up to date? Remember, God cannot take you one step further in your faith journey. He cannot take you one step higher in your faith ascent until you obey up to the level of your present understanding of what you know to be right and true in His sight. When are you going to be found doing what you're supposed to be doing in life? When will you get out of the rut that you're in and get your feet on higher ground? How about now? Now is a good time. Now is always the best time to obey God. Now is always the best time to begin to do what you're supposed to do. Now is the time to commit to greater faithfulness in worship. Now is the time for involvement in some kind of a discovery Bible study group. Now is the time to begin intentionally discipling your own children. Now is the time to find a place to serve. Now is the time to begin to obey God in your financial stewardship. Now is always the best time for total commitment. I want to ask you this question relevant to our all-in generosity initiative. We're asking 100% of our Crossroads Church family to pray about their participation in our generosity journey, to seek God's direction about their personal response, what step they will take up on the generosity ladder. There are some people who come to church who have never given. They've never been asked. They've never been challenged. They've never learned. We want those people to step up to this rung on the ladder, to become first-time givers, to begin to put their treasure where they want their heart to be. Then there are those who have been first-time givers. We want to challenge them to take the next step up and be occasional givers. There are those who have been occasional givers. We want them to take the next step up to becoming intentional givers, to plan and execute their stewardship in a responsible way. Those who have been intentional givers, we want to challenge them to take the next step up and begin to tithe, to experience the joy and the peace and the blessing. Last night after the service, a man came down and tied me up for 12 minutes to tell me that when he had gone to the Sweetwater Event Center for a vision night, that he had decided that he was going to change his giving. He's on a fixed income. He's an elderly gentleman. He was going to change his giving from $75 a week to $100 a week, and he said, that will take me up to a tithe for the first time in my life, in my Christian life, and he said, since I've made that commitment and followed through with it, he said, I cannot tell you how together my life is. I cannot tell you how much peace I have, how much fulfillment I have, the feeling I have in the presence of the Lord because I know I'm doing, he said, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And those who have been faithful tithers, we want a challenge to take the next step up and become generous givers. This is the generosity journey. It's like a ladder. And all we want is for all of us as a church, everybody that calls Crossroads their church home, to be all in and to make some kind of commitment affecting their stewardship, which will in turn affect their discipleship. Listen, this isn't really about Crossroads. It isn't. This is between you and the Lord. It's like it was between the Lord and Noah. 
But when he brings conviction on your heart in response to your sincere prayer, like Noah, just do everything he commands you to do. Whatever it is, he impresses on you that you are supposed to do. Follow through with it. Let me pull it all together this morning, say what I want to say in a single statement about total commitment. This is about total commitment. This is what I want to say about it based on the life of Noah in a single sentence. As you obey God and as you fulfill your trust, doing what you're supposed to do, obeying everything He has commanded, doing what you're supposed to do, you will find favor in His eyes and you can move forward in obedience with full assurance that he will withhold no good thing from you. So Noah stayed afloat, and he saved his family by being all in. That's a good thing. And Sarah shopped for maternity clothes and gave birth to Isaac when she was 90 years old because she was all in. It's a good thing. And Moses freed a nation from slavery by being all in. That was a good thing. And Joshua conquered a city by being all in, a good thing. David brought down a giant bully by being all in. It was a good thing. Peter walked on water by being all in, a good thing. So what about you? What good thing? What good thing is God about to do in your life? Because you are going to seize and you are going to embrace your all-in moment. How will you experience his favor because you have done everything the Lord commanded you. Obedience is what we're talking about. Obedience and the resultant blessing. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, I want to pray right now that I have spoken the truth for you from your word. Father, I pray that I haven't made too much of this lesson. Fact is, you don't owe any of us a thing. We're all debtors to you for the wonderful grace you've freely given to us in Jesus. But Lord, in your word, there's such a clear link between obedience and blessing, and we don't want to ignore it. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things I say. And he went right on to, to tell the parable of a man who built his house in the sand and a man who built his house on the rock. We want to live a life that's built on the rock, a life that withstands the storms, it stands in the midst of the onslaught of winds and hails, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the rest of it. We know to build that kind of life, it's got to be on the rock. Jesus said it all has to do with lordship. It all has to do with obeying him. We embrace that today. We are not going to ignore it. Last thing we want to do is uh, turn our backs on it. We give it a full embrace today, the full embrace of total commitment, being all in like Noah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.